This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. The bond between sisters is a unique one. And growing up biracial in 1960s Glasgow, sisters Lorraine and Tony Freeman had an unbreakable one. They had navigated a distinct set of circumstances a challenging upbringing in difficult surroundings. They'd survived adolescence and made it to adulthood, in one piece and closer than ever. So the strain put on that bond when Lorraine disappeared, well, you can imagine the impact that it had. In this episode, we examine the disappearance of Lorraine and the ongoing struggle that Tony has to make sense of it. For 25 years, she's ploughed a lone furrow no longer with her sister to lean on, as she looks for answers about what happened to Lorraine. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Lorraine Freeman. I suppose it was hard growing up at that time, Do you know, like, because we were, like, one of the very few coloured families, you know, like, at that time in that area. The place in question was Con Wardrick, a residential area less than 10 miles from Glasgow. Well, there was always a lot of aces. I mean, I used to fight nearly every day at school. There was always somebody sort of, like, calling you names. Uh, you learn, do you know, like, you learn to manage it, don't you? That's Tony Barker, Lorraine's younger sister recalling the challenges she and her siblings faced as some of the very few mixed-race children attending their school. 
It was difficult at times, um, but luckily, like, sort of, like, we had a lot of local friends and sort of, like, but when you went to the school when there was people from other areas, they would always kind of pick on you, you know, for no reason. It was just every day. It was relentless. <laughs> Tony and Lorraine learned early on that they would have to be streetwise, to fight their own battles and to look out for each other. Back in that day and age, you know, if somebody picked on you, you get flung out the door, go and deal with it, you know, go stand up for yourself. Oh, certainly I did, my brother didn't. <laughs> I used to fight his battles as well. Paul was the youngest, Tony the middle child, and Lorraine the eldest. Their parents, Anthony and Phyllis, had met while serving in the RAF. Dad was a mechanical fitter, he was he worked on uh, all the mechanics. And my mum done, um, no, like, the spray paint of the jets and stuff. Their father, Anthony, had been born in London, and his journey to Scotland had been an unconventional one. His mother was a dancer um, that had come over from Jamaica, I believe. I'd got pregnant with my dad, but the man that she got pregnant with died in a car crash. So she put my dad up for adoption, and she had friends in Scotland this family, and it was sort of like an unofficial adoption. So Anthony ended up in Carnwaldrick, south of the River Clyde, where a significant chunk of the population worked in textiles. Apparently he was the first black kid ever there. He was really very, very, very well liked with the neighbours and the local, and it was really tight, tight knit community then, yeah. So he was, he was very accepted. For the most part, Tony and Lorraine have fond memories of growing up with their parents in Scotland. Well, we grew up in sort of like um, a three-bedroom semi in Glasgow, um, in, in Carnwardrick. It was, it was a nice area. We spent all our time riding our bikes, going fishing, playing in the dams. Uh, I mean, it was all outdoor stuff. We, was, we were always out. Had a, had, a, had a nice childhood in that respect. I mean, the summers were good then, so we would just sort of like, you'd always be out until lights out, no? So it was always good. Anthony and Phyllis had left the RAF at this point. My dad was a mechanic and uh, my mum worked in a pet shop for many years. And then mum stopped working and sort of just sort of took over the family role, really. Um, well, dad continued working. Tony remembers her sister as shy and withdrawn in the early years. She was a lot quieter than me. I was always out playing. Lorraine would sort of be more sort of like in the house, sort of doing like arty craft stuff. And uh, she didn't socialise as much. She kind of had like the neighbours, like she had a friend Jackie and Christine across the road, and they would just kind of go to each other's houses, but they never really played out a great deal. Lorraine didn't find school straightforward. She struggled to fit in both socially and academically. She always sort of like had her uh, difficulties because she was classed as dyslexic, yeah. So she did go to a school that was classed as a special school, which, I mean, in this day and age, it just wouldn't happen. She would have went to mainstream school, which I do feel was rather sad. And I think maybe, and I take a lot of reflection, I think maybe that's why she was kind of quiet. You know, it was, it's a whole different era nowadays, isn't it? But against external difficulties, the three siblings were a tight unit who enjoyed each other's company. Monopoly and... Movie nights. We used to watch the, like a lot of the old Hammer films, you know, like the Dracula movies and the werewolf ones. That <laughs> uh, was sort of like our family time and just sort of playing games. 
The children were close with their mother, but none of that negated the fact that their parents were on the way to separating, and it created an atmosphere that they weren't keen to spend time in. And when Tony was 12 and Lorraine was 9, their parents divorced. It was quite amicable, actually. Dad would, he would come and visit, yeah. Um, they actually got on better once they divorced them, but they never did together, because <laughs> there was no arguing then. The impact of a divorce on a child can be varied. For some, it changes the entire outlook of their life. Others will simply adapt, absorb the differences, and move forward unscathed. For Lorraine, there were no obvious immediate effects. She left school at 16 and found a job with a company called Cohen's in Pollockshaws, a 10-minute bus ride from the family home. It's a large sewing factory, you know, like where they used to do piecework. So if you could machine, you could make quite a lot of money. She took to the work like a duck to water. Lydia had nimble fingers. She was always, she, she was good, she was fine. She, she enjoyed the job. It was around this time that Tony began to notice a change in her sister. The quiet, reserved girl who had always seemed adrift at school had found something she excelled at, and she began to emerge from her shell. She sort of like came into her own, sort of like a teenage year. She always ventured a bit further where I, I sort of stayed local to the area. It may have taken some time, but Lorraine was changing, becoming more worldly, more sociable. With her newfound confidence, Lorraine started hitting the town. The year was 1980, and she was a huge music fan, which meant two things. Big hair and British New Wave. She was into bands like Haircut 100 and later on Duran Duran. All these wacky bands that I couldn't stand. (laughs) British figure skater Robin Cousins had brought home the gold at the Winter Olympics that year, kicking off something of a skating craze, however short-lived, and Lorraine was a big fan. She used to go ice skating a lot. It was around this time that the sisters' relationship underwent a significant change. Because we went through a stage of fighting like cat and dog. I would say sort of like 14, 15, we did fight and argue a lot. This wasn't unusual. How many siblings can say that they went through adolescence without having a period of heated disagreements? But it was nothing more than that. After a period of frequent squabbles over privacy and clothes, they weathered the storm to emerge as firm friends. Yeah, certainly. When I was about 18, we sort of like definitely had a much better relationship. By this time, Lorraine had gotten herself a new job, working as a chambermaid in a holiday inn. She loved hospitality, and it was the sector where she would spend the rest of her working life. At 26, she made the decision to leave Scotland. She found a job in another Holiday Inn and a place in St John's Wood and made the move to London by herself. And it was a room, it was above a Indian restaurant and it was just, well, you could smell Indian in the room and I was just like, why are you living here? And uh, I'd moved to Windermere by then, so I had some money. I said, do you want some money? Do you want like, get a decent place? And she showed me her bank book. She says, I've got money. She says, we're just saving up to seek to get a better place. The we're in this case meant Lorraine and Philip. Philip was Lorraine's boyfriend. She'd met him shortly after making the move to London and they'd quickly moved in together. Tony first heard about him from her mother. Mum had said, oh, Lorraine's got a boyfriend. 
And then the next time I come home, mum says, oh, Lorraine's been up with her boyfriend. So so I hadn't I hadn't met him at this stage. Um, so I thought, oh, God, I have to go down and check him out, you know. So I'd, I'd gone down to London to visit her. Tony was now living in Windermere in Cumbria with her partner, Kevin, and had started a family. So opportunities for the sisters to see each other were harder to come by. But they stayed in touch, regularly speaking on the phone. Like at least sort of once a week, once a fortnight, you know, like we were busy, we were living in each other's pockets. And when they spoke, Lorraine and Philip's relationship was a frequent topic of discussion. Lorraine happily updating her sister on her plans for the future. You know, sometimes she seemed quite happy with them. Sometimes, you know, like, oh yeah, we're planning, you know, like they were planning and getting married. Uh, they got engaged. We're saving up for a wedding, and then next minute it was, and they, they weren't getting on. It was, it was up and down, yeah. Lorraine and Philip were saving for a wedding, but it was slow going. They enjoyed taking trips together for one. They used to go to his family in Ireland. Um, she annoyed Lorraine because Philip always had to send a lot of money back to his parents. That was essentially that. Lorraine and Philip were like any other happy couple, moving through life and dealing with whatever it threw at them. By 1998, Lorraine was now 36, and she and Philip had been together for the best part of a decade. She seemed happy, content. There was no hint of any issue or problems on the horizon. She was going to a night college and she was learning to read and write. That was coming on. She was really enjoying that. She was happy with her job. She was just wanting to sort of save up some money and get a new place and have some holidays and stuff. She was doing really, really well. Tony first became aware that something was wrong in the August of 1998. I'd phoned mum and... I said, like, I haven't spoke to Lorraine for ages. She hasn't phoned me. Like, she'd moved her. I had, I hadn't got a phone number, I think, for her yet. Lorraine and Philip had moved into a new flat in Perfleet, Essex, a few weeks earlier, and none of her family had her new number yet. Tony's mother, Phyllis, shared her daughter's concern at the lack of contact from Lorraine. And not long after that very conversation, Phyllis did, in fact, receive a call. Only it wasn't from her eldest daughter. It was the police that got in contact with my mum, I believe. Essex police told Phyllis that Lorraine had been reported missing on August the 13th. Philip had reported her missing. He'd gone back to see his parents. Philip, who was originally from Ireland, had left the UK to go on a 10-day trip to visit family back home. And then he'd come back home and the flat was empty. Well... Not empty, everything of hers was just as, as she'd left it that day, but there was no Lorraine. Lorraine's mother was understandably panicked when she heard this news, but Tony was less alarmed. Yeah, she was concerned because the police were involved. and uh, I just said, I shall turn up. Tony didn't think they should be jumping to conclusions just yet and that there was probably a perfectly good reason why Lorraine wasn't home. I thought maybe she'd just got away on holiday with one of her friends and she'd show up the next week. I thought if he's gone to Ireland, she might have just went, oh, he's gone to Ireland, bugger it, I'm going to go on holiday. But as the days went by, still with no sign of Lorraine, Tony found panic slowly creeping in. The police were treating her sister 
as a non-suspicious missing person by this point and had been making tentative inquiries. The family wondered what could have happened. Had Lorraine been keeping something from them, a desire to get away, to go and live somewhere else? Had she started a new relationship? As much as they racked their brains and relived their previous conversations, nothing became apparent. They wondered whether Lorraine could have fallen ill, become disorientated or confused, and now be in the care of a hospital, unable to give her name. But the police explained that there were protocols to match unknown patients with missing persons records, and nothing was coming up. What else could explain her sudden departure? Was there a more recent, more urgent desire to go elsewhere? A conscious decision to up sticks and leave her past behind? Or something more sinister, which had prompted her to disappear? Both the police and the family knew that any step forward would likely be as a result of a sighting. And their hopes were raised when a CCTV image of Lorraine was discovered, the last photo known of her to exist. Lorraine was last seen on the CCTV camera on the High Street, I believe. You leave the taxi rank after she'd seen Philip off. Police began to actively search the town of Perfleet for any signs of Lorraine. As far as I'm aware, they dredged a local lake. From the very early stages, Lorraine's mother was firm in her belief that her daughter's disappearance was due to foul play. She couldn't make any sense of the other options. Lorraine rarely went more than a week or two without contacting her, so this radio silence spooked her. At one point, she believed that Lorraine had been murdered and buried in Hyde Park. I said, Mum, Hyde Park's not like that. <laughs> Do you know, you wouldn't have the opportunity. Do you know, like, even at night time, there's people about us. It just wouldn't happen. But she'd, she'd got it in her head. From those early days of Lorraine being reported missing, there was a roller coaster of emotions. There were dozens and dozens of questions. The false hope, fresh ideas that quickly faded away, thinking the worst dismissing those fears. It was a period of lurching between hope and despair. Tony recalls being frustrated by their interactions with the police. They felt like Lorraine wasn't being looked for as a priority and that opportunities were being missed. They felt that not enough effort had been made to reach out to people who knew Lorraine, people who might be able to help. I think I had um, a telephone call uh, police didn't come down to see me for years later. I think it must have been sort of like a, a cold case kind of thing. It, I didn't speak to the police directly face to face for years later. Lorraine had made a lot of friends during her years in hospitality. People she would meet with regularly. As far as the family were aware, none of these friends were contacted by police. And the family can't help but wonder if one of them might have known something or to have been able to offer a clue as to what Lorraine was thinking in the days before she vanished. A friend of Lorraine's had got in touch with my mum and asked about Lorraine and it was only then that she'd found out that she was missing and apparently they were really, really close. It wasn't just Lorraine's blood relatives who were searching and desperate for answers. Her partner Philip was appealing for help too. 
that he done a TV show that my mum and Philip went on together, yeah. Philip met up a few times with Phyllis and both took part in various campaigns to keep Lorraine's case in the public eye. But as time went on, his proximity to the family broke down. The partners of missing women are naturally looked at closely by authorities. Statistically, they are the most likely people to be involved. But there was no evidence that suggested Philip had anything to do with Lorraine's disappearance. And the fact that they were engaged and had just made a move to a new flat would suggest that they were in it for the long haul and committed to one another. In many episodes of The Missing, there are theories and sightings aplenty. But there were few other leads or suspects in this one. And there was simply nothing for the investigative team or the family to cling on to. They didn't have a sighting. They didn't have any motivation. No history of disappearing or running away. They had nothing. It might seem bizarre, but it was only four years after Lorraine's disappearance that Tony sat down for a formal interview with the police. They wanted to ask her some questions about Lorraine to see if they could move their investigation along. But Tony had plenty of questions for them too. I asked them questions about their investigation because um, I said I didn't sort of think, think that enough had been done. Like Tony didn't get any answers that satisfied her. I think it was a cold case. They did, did they just um, reopened the case and they were they were having a look at it. Tony has wrestled with the idea that Lorraine may have left of her own accord for a long time, but for her it doesn't stack up. I think if she would have left them, she would have been in contact. Though I'm not saying that she wouldn't have left them. Do you know what I mean? I mean Lorraine was always really really close to mum. There's, there's no way she wouldn't have not got in touch with my mum. And she would have probably asked for mum's help, you know, like... She wouldn't have just... Well, I would find it very strange if she left them and just disappeared and never contacted my mum again. Or myself, because we were, we were getting on great, you know, we were, we were growing up. We were sort of, like, had a family. She'd been, she'd been at my wedding, she was my bridesmaid, you know. We were getting on fabulous at this time because we, we were growing up. Lorraine's disappearance has cast a long shadow over the lives of her family. It affects me every time I visit my mum, because it's basically all you ever talk about. It, it just takes over your whole life, doesn't it? Whether it's birthdays, weddings or a simple get-together, no reunion, no matter how joyful, can pass without her absence being felt. It takes over every family event, every family event it always turns about to Lorraine. And sometimes, you know, when you've just had a new baby or you don't want to go there, it's there's nothing you can do. I'm getting to that stage in my life now where I just want closure. I, I do, I just, I just want closure. And even if that means a, a body turning up, you know, at least you've got that closure. It's just, just this never known. It's never known what happens. It's, it's just horrible. For Tony and the rest of her sister's family, any facts, no matter how insignificant they seem, would be gratefully received. I would just say, please, please come forward and put this family at this living hell. Because it is, you know, she's got nieces and nephews. 
she's never met. Do you know, it'd be, it'd be just what I know. How can a person just disappear off the face of the earth and surely somebody knows something? And I think, like you say, even if it was bad news, you know, you, you know then. Whereas it's just, it's like loving me a cut that I'll never ever heal. And sometimes you scratch it really, really deep. Other times you leave it and you let it heal a bit, but it's always there, you know. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Lorraine, or you remember seeing someone like her in August 1998, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Lorraine Freeman before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. The series is also made with the help of missing people who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Tony hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.